This week on Raffi Reviews, Raffi Reviews, Spider-Man Homecoming. You know, I'm getting kind of sick about talking about movies that are very split in opinion. Uh, luckily, I didn't have that problem with Wonder Woman, but uh, it seems to be when it comes to Marvel movies lately, there is a bit of decisiveness. Um, Spider-Man Homecoming. <laughs> it, it is, I think, the smallest scaled Marvel movie. Yeah, I think that's a good, like... Even taking Ant-Man and running with that pun, Spider-Man is a, a pretty ground-level, pretty small movie in the grand scale of things. That being said, it it is big in gravitas for what it means for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but at the same time, due to the plot, it is not big. The world is not in danger. The entire city of New York is not in danger. The whole film feels like two or three issues of a Spider-Man comic book series, which I'm not saying is bad. I'm actually really happy the movie was given the small scale, because the problem with uh, Spider-Man movies before was because because those movies worked in their own continuity and were in their own universe, a lot of the time, sometimes the world would just be in danger. Maybe not a lot of the time, but in Spider-Man 2 by Sam Raimi, there's like a sun device that's going to swallow New York, and, and in Amazing Spider-Man... I think it's one the entire city's turned into lizards like you don't need to have something that big for spider-man the problem is that because that was sony's only character they had to make the problems that big now speaking of sony and the character obviously sony's been struggling with spider-man for a while now uh ever since spider-man 3 they've been kind of tripping over their own feet with spider-man and after the Sony email hack, I think that was kind of the kick in the pants that got Sony to go to Marvel and work out some kind of agreement regarding Spider-Man. Now, I'm not going to talk about how Sony and Marvel are going to work together in the future, because I know the lady in charge of Sony has talked about, oh, the Avengers aren't going to be super important to the rest of the Spider-Man movies, or we're going to migrate him away a little bit. Um, and I know they're talking about how, oh, we're doing a Venom movie and a Black Cat Silver Sable movie, and those are in continuity, but they're not in continuity. They're using Spider-Man, but not their Spider-Man. Sony has underpants on backwards on top of their head, and the tag is over their nose. I'm not going to get into that. I'm just talking about this movie, because this movie is kind of like... It's a good Spider-Man movie, um... I will say it's the best. For a long time, I didn't have a favorite Spider-Man movie. Because, I mean, if I if you had to, you know, twist my wrist, I'd say Spider-Man 1 or Spider-Man 2, because those are the obvious ones. But for me, all five of the Spider-Man movies had features I liked, but separate from one another. It kind of felt like if you mashed all five of them into one movie, you might get the kind of Spider-Man movie I'd want to watch. But at the same time, there are so many conflicting things. I didn't really, like big boat of contemption for me. I don't like when he has organic web shooters, like in the Sam Raimi movies. I get it, that that makes the story easier. And it takes out the contrivance of him running out of web fluid. But if you give him web slingers, you instantly know he's intelligent without anyone saying it. 
just the fact that he built those devices tells you he's a smart kid. Um, and like with the Andrew Garfield ones, those movies weren't written well, and Sony didn't know what they were doing, but they gave us a Gwen Stacy with an actual personality. And Amazing Spider-Man 2 probably has the best Spider-Man suit. Like, I mean, I don't know. That's another thing for me, is like, the suit thing of like, this Spider-Man Homecoming suit compared to Amazing Spider-Man and their suit, they're neck and neck for me. Because they both have features I like, and they're both very close to the comics. But again, they're, both of them have things that I don't necessarily like all that much. The Amazing Spider-Man 2 suit's a little too dark, but whatever. We're not talking about that. We're talking about Homecoming. Because Homecoming is the Spider-Man movie I think I wanted. You know, most of it takes place in a high school, which if you're going to start Spider-Man fresh out the gate, you may as well have a story take place in high school. Um, it does away with a lot of the kind of typical Spider-Man story aspects. There's no Uncle Ben death scene. There's no Spider-Man, Spider biting him and giving him powers. There's no explanation as to, like, you know, when did he <laughs> did he wrestle? When did he build the suit? When, you know, I mean, the, the DIY suit. Um, where the flu would come from. There, there's not a lot given to that focus, and I appreciate that. There's a lot of things about this movie I appreciate that they kind of give you as the viewer the benefit of the doubt and say, you as the viewer know Spider-Man, so we're not going to remind you who he is. But at the same time, we're going to give you the most legitimate Peter Parker you've ever seen on film. And I, I totally feel that way. This Peter Parker, he fits the bill. Tom Holland does a great job. That's a good uh, segue into talking about the cast. So Tom Holland as Peter Parker slash Spider-Man. Uh, we saw him in Civil War. I talked about him a little bit when I reviewed Civil War. Uh, we're seeing him in full view here. He's the main character of the story. Tom Holland does an excellent job at portraying Peter Parker. He gets the awkwardness right of Peter Parker. He gets the sense of humor correct. Um, I'm really into this idea that this Peter Parker, as well as the entire Spider-Man movie, is not Spider-Man for my generation, it's Spider-Man for the next generation. And I think that's a really important thing to hold on to when you think about Spider-Man Homecoming, is that it's not a movie made to replicate Spider-Man of the 90s, Spider-Man of the 60s, Spider-Man of the early 2000s. It's made to propagate what Spider-Man would be now. And that's the most important part you got to keep in mind when you think about this movie. Um, and like, Again, he's quippy, he's awkward, um... I think Tom Holland brings kind of the insecurity and frailty of Peter Parker while also carrying that drive and that motivation to try harder. You know, this is a Peter Parker who wants to be an Avenger. It's a Peter Parker that wants to be acknowledged for being Spider-Man and, and doing all the great things he's done, which is another feature that the movies previously touched upon a little bit, but they never really, like, fully fleshed out. That Spider-Man, you know, if you're a teenager and you're saving people's lives you're going to want some praise for that. And people can talk up Spider-Man as well as they want, but they're never going to talk up Peter Parker, and that's that's just the trouble of the character. Um, I think he betrays him really well. I think his powers are, are portrayed pretty well, too. You know, you don't... He's not doing anything too miraculous as far as strength goes. Like, he's not holding up a bridge. The most amazing thing he does is he holds a boat together for, like, a few seconds. Um... But you do see his super strength to some extent. Um, and I think it's done really well. It's not too ob too obnoxious in your face as far as how strong he is. Um, the webbing was handled really well. I like the, I like the way the webbing looks. I like the way he sets up the webbing. Um, 
usually webbing is just used to kind of hold stuff together, but he actually ties webbing into knots, which is cool. Um, he does, like, classic beater things where he'll take off his clothes and hide them somewhere in the streets and, like, web them. That's cool. Um, man, he, he does some cool things with webbing. What else? Uh, I guess we can talk more about the suit later, because I do have that on here. Um, but the scene that gets me, the scene that I'm like, no, yeah, this, Tom Holland's like the best Spider-Man on film. This, this is the thing that got me. Um, the scene with the rubble, where the, the vulture leaves Spider-Man behind under all this rubble, and he can't lift it up. And at that moment, you see the, the facege of Spider-Man melt down, you see the confidence of Peter Parker melt down, and you see a scared 15-year-old kid who's going to be crushed to death by rubble. And there's no one there to help him. There's no one there to hear him when he calls out. He's alone, and all he can do is panic and, and, and scream. And Holland pulls that off so well. I was, you know, that was the scene that told me, like, no, this, this kid has a lot of talent for what he's doing. I really, really like that scene because it's lifted from an issue of Amazing Spider-Man, I think from the 70s. It might have been one of Stanley's last stories. Uh, not that he died. We know he lived and everything, but whatever. So, uh, in the story, Spider-Man is trapped under, like, a large chunk of metal that weighs, like, eight elephants or something. And the water in the in this evil lair is, like, pouring up. I think he's, like, in a lair underwater. But he's at risk of drowning. And he's thinking to himself about Aunt May and Uncle Ben and Mary Jane. He's thinking about all the people he's, he's loved and he's met. The entire issue, the entire issue of that book is him thinking to himself and building the confidence he needs to, to get out of there. And so that scene under the rubble is a reflection of that. And it's... It's done really well. There's a shot where <laughs> Spider-Man's mask is in the water, and the reflection off this pool of water is half the mask and half his face, which, if you read any Spider-Man comic, they usually have a panel like that. Back in the 60s, when his Spider-Sense would go off, half of his mask would appear over his face. Not because that's what would literally happen, but because it was, a, it was the artist's way of telling us, the reader, that his Spider-Sense is activating. But also, like, in stories where it's, like, you know, a typical Spider-Man story, sometimes they'll just show, like, a profile of his face with half Peter Parker, half Spider-Man, because the thing that separates Spider-Man from a lot of superheroes is that Peter Parker and Spider-Man are not two different people. They're not two different personalities. They're not two different aspects of this one person. Peter Parker is Spider-Man. And... You know, saying that out loud sounds obvious and contrived, and, well, of course he is. Why wouldn't he be? But I mean that on the most personable level, where when you're talking to Spider-Man, you think you're talking to Spider-Man, you're talking to Peter Parker. You're talking to the same person. Spider-Man does not pretend to be Peter Parker. Peter Parker does not pretend to be Spider-Man. They're the same person. You know, for comparison's sake, a lot of times when Batman thinks in his head he refers to himself as Batman. And, you know, he, he sees the Batman mantle as something beyond himself. Um, but for Spider-Man, it was never that. And, like, you read stories like Superior Spider-Man, you read stories like Craven's Last Hunt, and you understand the idea that Peter Parker and Spider-Man are one person. 
And so in that rubble scene, when he sees the mask and it's half his face, half the Spider-Man mask, it reminds him he is Spider-Man. And, and there's, you know, no, no one can take that away from him. Even if he doesn't have, like, the techie costume, even if he doesn't have any costume, he'll always be that person. It's more like Spider-Man is just a way of reminding himself how much potential he has. So he lifts himself from the rubble and he gets free. It's it's an amazing scene. It's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. Um, it's done really well. I think Tom Holland really has this down. And I'm, I'm liking the idea that the teenage cast, they're basically Harry Pottering it, where like it's like, ugh. They're doing the Harry Potter thing, where they have a young cast of characters, but we're going to stay with them for a while. We're going to see them grow up. We're going to see Tom Holland's character develop more and more. It's going to be fantastic. I'm, I'm really, I really love Tom Holland as Spider-Man. Uh, excellent job. Uh, of course, you wouldn't have the main character without his goofy best friend, and that's uh, Gank. I mean, uh, Ned Leeds, played by Jason Battalion. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Gank, we all know. If you know Miles Morales, you know Gank you know the joke between Gank and uh, Ned Leeds in this movie. Uh, in the comics, Ned Leeds was a skinny white dude. In the movie here, he seems to be a chunky Hispanic kid. But regardless, uh, Ned is Peter Parker's best friend, which is cool. He never really had one. I know a lot of people are like, oh, but Harry. And it's like, Harry was his friend, but not to the point where they hung out all the time, not to the point where he was over his house. Harry and Peter were friends as much as they were rivals, but... This time, it's like Peter and Ned are actual friends. And I, I kind of like that. I kind of like that because neither of them seem better than the other. They both kind of seem like they're on the same peer level. While also the same personable level. Like, I can see those two kind of, like, based on their two personalities, I can see them being friends. Um, which I never really got from Harry and Peter and, and older movies. And even in the comics, to some regard. Um, but he's fun. He's a supporting character. He's kind of Peter's wingman. Uh, you got hold, that whole joke about him wanting to be the guy in the chair, because when he discovers Peter Parker as Spider-Man, he's like, oh, you gotta let me help you. You gotta be, you gotta let me be your guy in the chair. And by the end of the movie, he's the guy in the chair. So, that's cool. Hopefully he doesn't, like, make a superhero identity, because in the comics, like, Ned Leeds becomes either the Green Goblin, like, a Green Goblin, or the Hobgoblin. Hopefully it doesn't happen. Hopefully we can kind of keep goblins on the low period here. Um, but he's fun. There's not much I can say. I, I think... I think Jason Battalion, like, gets this kind of teenager, where he's, where he's fat, he breathes heavy, it takes a while for him to say something if he's thinking about it really hard. Um, there's that whole scene, like, during the prom when he's on the computers, the teacher walks in, like, what are you doing in here? And he's like, uh, I was watching porn. <laughs> he does that so well. I, I like, uh, I like Ned's character, I like his hat. <laughs> uh, I think he's done really well. Um... Who else? Uh, sticking with the, the teenage characters, you have uh, Flash Thompson, played by Tony Revolori. I know a lot of people, not as much as MJ, but a lot of people had a problem with this version of Flash Thompson. Why is he some Indian kid? Why isn't he a jock? Why is he on the science team with Peter? Why is he so annoying? And it's like, again, going back to the point I made, this isn't Spider-Man from any previous generation. This is Spider-Man from now. And what comes with that is the idea that Flash Thompson isn't a blonde-headed varsity jock anymore. At least not now, because those people don't exist as much. The modern bully is a troll. And the modern bully is not some jacked-up, like, 
every Repu- every Republican's like dream of what his son would be is not what the modern jock is anymore. Sometimes the modern jock is just some annoying kid who happens to be in your peer group and, and make fun of you and, and shit. And the whole idea of, like, this time around, Flash Thompson seems to be coming from a rich family, and he's got a nice car and everything because his dad lets him borrow it. Um, but he seems to come from a, a rich family, so he thinks he's he thinks he's entitled. Uh, he is annoying. He does DJ. He does demand attention. But again, that's kind of how the modern dickhead is in school now. He demands attention, and he demands an audience. That's why he's a DJ, and he drives a nice car and everything. Um, and the whole thing of, like, him on the science team, right? That would seem to imply that, like, the school he's going to... I forget what the name of the school is, but... the the is it Empire State? I can't, I can't remember. But um, the school that he's going to might just be, like, kind of high grade. So he has to, he has to study, and he has to be smart just to go there. Um, and, like, I, I like the idea that he's kind of, like... Not stalking Peter Parker. That's actually another character. <laughs> I like the idea that he is trying to compete with Peter. And Peter doesn't see it that way. Peter just sees him as some annoying kid. But I think Flash seems, sees Peter as like a rival of some sort. Because they're both on the science team. Um, of all the people he chooses to harass, Flash chooses to harass Peter. Which I find interesting. I remember in the comics, I think they did this in one of the cartoons too. Flash and Peter were childhood friends that just kind of strung away from each other when they got older. Which happens all the time in real life. Um, so I like the idea that they could have been childhood friends. They strang away from each other. Maybe Flash has a little bit of resentment because Peter never stayed his friend. And that could be why he's such a dick to Peter specifically. Um, speaking of dicks, <laughs> um, Flash's nickname for Peter is Penis Parker. Uh, it used to be Puny Parker on the books. And if people get pissed off about that, again, what do bullies do now? They come up with the most unoriginal, vulgar, like, potty humor insults to just annoy you. It's not because it's funny, and it's not because it's clever. It's so they can see you get annoyed, and they can piss you off, and they can get attention from that. That's the modern-day bully, and that's what Flash Thompson is. He calls him Penis Parker because it's stupid, and because it pisses Peter off, and that makes Flash happy. That, that's what the character is. And like, oh my god, I heard complaints online of people being like, isn't he supposed to become Venom? Like, I can't see this kid becoming Venom. And it's like, okay, first of all, Flash Thompson was not created to be Venom. Eddie Brock was created to be Venom. No, Flash Thompson was created to be a bully. He was created to be a supporting character. And he was created to eventually befriend Peter Parker and be his friend. That's what he was created to be. It was... It was supposed to be a developmental character, just like every other character in Spider-Man lore. The whole Flash Thompson Venom thing happened in the 2000s where they were running out of ideas for Venom. They were like, I don't know, let's make Venom a tactical agent, and hey, why don't we give Venom to Peter's old bully and, and see what comes of that, because he had a fucked up life. It was an afterthought. It was a thought come up with, like, decades in the future. Flash Thompson isn't designed to become Venom. And, like, if they don't make him Venom in the future... I don't care. You know, I don't care. I feel like more people are going to like Eddie Brock Venom just because of nostalgia than they will Flash Thompson Venom. Like, in the comics, I like Flash Thompson Venom more than Eddie Brock. But even I will admit that Eddie Brock Venom makes more of an impression than Flash Thompson Venom. That being said, if they don't decide to make him Venom, fine. 
fine. They they have Tom Hardy now, apparently. Two Toms for the price of one. But if they do make this kid Venom, it's not going to be tomorrow. It's not going to be this 15-year-old dickheaded brat. Like, when Flash Thompson became Venom, it wasn't instant. It wasn't out of high school, then he becomes Venom. No, Flash Thompson went to the military, lost his legs, and then got offered the chance to be Agent Venom. And even then he had doubts. Even then he was an alcoholic. Even then he had regrets about bullying Peter Parker. You cannot just go out there and say, I don't like this Flash Thompson because I can't see him becoming Venom. Of course you can't, because this is his first day at being Flash Thompson. You know, it's... It's like if you watch Spider-Man Homecoming and you're like, oh, I can't see Peter Parker being an Avenger. I can't see Peter Parker leading the Avengers. I, can see, I can't see Peter Parker leading his own company. Of course you can't, because that's not where he's at yet. The whole point of Spider-Man Homecoming is to show you the first versions of all these characters so that we can watch them grow and change and get to that point. When you're watching Harry Potter 1, do you expect him to save the world in the first, episode, in the first movie? No. No, as he grows up, you see his potential get better, and you see him get that ability to save the world. I'm not a Harry Potter expert, but even I know in the first movie of a series, you're not supposed to make the main guy the best guy ever. You're supposed to let him grow. That even applies to Superman. The whole reason Man of Steel sucks is because not because he's all-powerful already, but it's because as a person, he's supposed to grow. And it sucks because he does grow, but in the wrong direction. <laughs> but... But Flash Thompson, if they do decide to make him Venom, it's going to be movies from now. It's going to be years from now. The kid you see in Batman Homecoming now is not going to be the kid you see in, like, Venom 4 in 2025 or something. He's going to be completely adult. He's not going to be the same bratty kid. That's not the point. Venom's not supposed to be a bratty kid. He's supposed to be an adult. So give him time to grow up. Don't jump to conclusions. You're going you're gonna to hear me say don't jump to conclusions a lot of times during this review, so get used to that. Um, but I like Flash Thompson. He is the modern-day Flash Thompson. And, you know, the whole Venom thing, I'm going to let it play out. I'm not going to jump to conclusions. Um, all right, we'll, we'll talk about a teenage character who isn't, like, a big topic of discussion. <laughs> Liz Allen, played by Loria uh, Harrier. Now, again, they don't really say her name is Liz Allen. They kind of leave that ambiguous because of uh, the Adrian Toomes thing. Uh, again, another thing I heard people complain, like, why does Adrian Toomes have the last name Toomes? I listen to a lot of British and Australian people. Um, but Liz Allen's still Liz Allen. It's like, I don't even think they call her Liz Allen. I don't know. It's it's 2017. People can do whatever they want with their names. Um, point is, Liz Allen's in this. And, like, if they did call her Liz Toomes, it would ruin the, it would ruin the surprise. So, bite me. Um, Liz Allen is the love interest in this movie, uh, and that's it. <laughs> uh, Laurie Harrier plays her fine. Again, Liz Allen in the comics wasn't super... I mean, they did stuff with her, but, like, they did it to make her interesting. They only made it worse. In the comics, she's, like, she married Harry and had a kid with them. Um, in Spectacular Spider-Man, her brother was the Molten Man, which is a pretty cool idea. And I think she was made Hispanic for the cartoon as well. In this, she's African-American, but I think she's mixed because of, uh, tombs and everything. Um, but she's just, she's nice, she's smart, she's got a sense of humor, uh, she seems interested in Peter Parker, and that's cool. Like, she basically has all the makings of what Gwen Stacy was, 
and that's fine. Again, they might not use Gwen Stacy. We don't know. They have plenty of time. I don't think, like, I'm pretty sure Gwen Stacy died when they were both in college, so they have plenty of time if they want to do something with that. Um, but yeah, Liz is in here. She's the love interest. Luckily, they don't, like, put her life at risk in any way. It's actually kind of like, <laughs> they kind of do a twist on it with the whole Vulture thing. Um, but she's the love interest. that She's the thing that Peter wants. Um, mainly because she's pretty, and, like, I can't fault him for that. It's not like the two of them had a connection prior. It's just she's a really pretty girl that Peter likes, and that's that's all it needs to be. It doesn't have to be anything more. And I, I love the fact that they don't get together by the end. She doesn't die by the end. She just goes away for a while, you know? She might come back in the next movie. She might come back a few movies down the road, and she might be older and a little bit different, you know? By then, Peter might be with someone else, and you have a love, a love triangle situation. It could be cool. I'm going to give it the time to, to, to flesh out. Um, let's see. Any other... <sighs> I'll save her for last. You, you know who I'm going to talk about last. We'll talk. We'll save her for later. Um, Tony Stark. Actually, no. Not Tony Stark. We'll talk about Aunt May first. Because, again, I want to talk about Aunt May. I like Aunt May. Uh, I like Aunt May for the MCU. Or the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I like her because... Well, let, me, let me put it to you this way. My aunt is not 60 years old. She's not 70. She's not 80. She's not 90. My aunt is about the same age as my mother, around the same age. So, realistically, your aunt shouldn't be that old. <laughs> I get that back in the day, they wanted to make her old so you can have the whole drama of like, oh, what if she gets hurt? But, um, no, I'm totally fine with Marissa Tomei, and Tomei playing Aunt May. I'm totally fine with her being like 40, maybe. Like, I'm totally fine with her being like a, the age of a mother. Like, that's realistic to me, and it's not, like, when it comes to realism in comic book movies, there's bad realism, there's good realism, and there's, un and there's unrealistic realism. Like, that bomb at the end of Dark Knight uh, Rises, that's unrealistic realism. Um, the voice modulator uh, on Batman's suit and Batman vs. Superman, that is, like, uh, unreasonable realism. <laughs> um, and then the fact that Aunt May is not a decrepit old corpse, that is realistic realism. <laughs> That's fine. And, uh, you know, she. what's nice is that she's not put at risk. Again, another character in Peter's life that isn't put in put at risk in this movie. Um, she isn't old, so we don't have to worry about her. We know she works, we don't know what she does, but that's fine too. We don't need a whole subplot with her and her job. Um, she does get involved in Peter's life in a few periods. I... I like the scene where they're getting ready for uh, for homecoming dance. <laughs> there's your there's your title drop, um, and she's helping him get dressed up and helping him dance and helping him like put on the tie. It's a cute scene, you know. I like that. I like that bonding moment between Peter and Spider-Man. We never really got that in the old movies. In the old movies, it was more like he just cared about her a lot and like watched over her. But you never really had a scene where the two of them did something together and she was helping him out. So it's nice. I like Marissa Tomei's Aunt May. And that whole reveal at the end <laughs> where Aunt May knows that he's Spider-Man, that was done really well. We'll talk about that later. Um, God, who else? Who else? Uh, yeah, so Tony Stark, Iron Man, played by Robert Downey Jr. You know him, you love him. He He's a good usher for this film. The film kind of feel, felt like a torch-passing movie in some regard, because of Tony Stark being in there. Um, and I love that, I, I love the way he was kind of handled in the film. 
You know, he, he had that whole responsible dad aspect. I will say, I still like Civil War's version of Iron Man better, but Spider-Man Homecoming version of Iron Man does show a lot of progress. And I like the idea that he doesn't really show up all that much. You know, he he's there for maybe like... I want to say five scenes. I want to say five scenes, Tony Stark's in there. And I think it's, again, I think it's done really well. I think his relationship with Peter's done really well. I know in the past I've had a problem with that because of, like, the Civil War and the, the Sokovia Accord and, you know, Spider-Man being a minor. And, you know, that that's a whole other topic for a whole other series of sorts. Um, but, no, I, I, think, I think, you know... He wasn't overused in this film. He was used just the right amount. He doesn't show up for the final battle. Again, I appreciate that. Let Spider-Man have his, his final battle. Um, he keeps a distance to some regard. It, it's funny. Iron Man is kind of like a parent in that regard, where when he first shows up to save Spider-Man, he's not in the suit. The suit is, remote, is, is remotely controlled by, by Iron Man. Um, the only part in which Iron Man drops down and gets out of his armor is when Peter Parker almost kills a bunch of people in that boat crash. So, it very is like a parent-child uh, relationship where if Spider-Man's doing something right, he'll get like a phone call and a pat on the back. But if he does something horrible, he's going to get talked to directly. <laughs> Which, you know, if you're a parent, you can take that however you want, but like, you know that kind of thing happens with parents and kids. Um, you know, it... He's good. He's fine. You know, the the suit's okay. It reminds me of Ultimate Iron Man, which, you know, that's fine, too. Um, they don't really overuse any other Avengers, which is nice. Uh, it's just Iron Man, which is cool. They mention the Vision, which is fun. Uh, the whole thing at the end where Peter refuses to become an Avenger because he wants to be on the ground more. That's cool, too. I like that. Um, it's good character arc for, 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 for Peter. It's a good character exposure of that. And then the whole thing with <laughs> with Iron Man, Tony Stark, and uh, Pepper Potts like getting engaged instead. Like, instead of announcing Spider-Man as an Avenger, they announced uh, that they're getting married, which is neat. It's neat, but it's also like, did you guys miss that whole part in, in Civil War where there was, like, a relationship problem between the two of you? Or, or let me guess, you just offered Gwyneth Paltrow more money. Let me just guess that. I'm guessing if she didn't come back, they'd need a much better backup plan than that engagement. <laughs> Um, Happy Hogan, played by John Favreau, he's good. I'm, I'm glad to see Happy Hogan get more of a role in this. I like him playing off of Peter, kind of just being really standoffish. Um, he's fun. He's fun. There's not much I can say about Happy Hogan. Uh, I think, I, I think he's handled really well. I like Peter in, like, pretty early in the movie. He's like, so, uh, why do they call you Happy? And he just rolls up the window of the limo, which is fun. Again, just a stern, kind of, like, no-nonsense adult having to deal with Peter Parker because Peter's important is, is funny. It's a, great, it's a great way of doing that. Okay, so the, so the Vulture, right? Adrian Toomes, played by Michael Keaton. <laughs> he was Batman. <laughs> he was Birdman. Whatever. Michael Keaton. Oh, my God. So, the Vulture, when they first showed him off, I said out loud during the trailer... He has no right looking this cool. And I think people might have interpreted that the wrong way. I do like this version of the Vulture. I'm just saying, when you look at the comic book version, and you look at this movie version, you're like, where? Where was the... 
where where was the like? It's one of those situations where it's like, no, yeah, you had to change the suit, you know. Like, there's always that joke when it comes to comic books of, like, movie directors and uh, studio people coming in and being like, oh, you can't have them wear that costume. It's too silly. No one's going to take the movie seriously. Whatever. But, like, I think collectively, when everyone sat down for Spider-Man Homecoming and they looked at a picture of the Vulture, they were like, yeah, we have to change everything about how he looks. And, like, they looked at his origin. we got to change everything about his origin. We just got to get, like, this Vulture is Vulture only by name. <laughs> There's no... Aside from how he looks... Like, not even how he looks, no. Aside from the animal he chooses to replicate and, like, the fact that he's elderly, in a way. Not even. He's, like, a dad age. But, like, his, in his actual name, his supervillain name, and the theme that he goes by, everything else is different. And I think that's awesome. I, I really... Like, with some Spider-Man characters, it's like, no, why would you change that? But with Vulture, I don't think anyone gave a shit. Um, I'm really happy with the way Adrian Toomes turned out. Uh, the whole aspect of him literally picking the bones of superhero fights like a Vulture. And, like, this is the thing I've always wanted for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. is for a villain or a group of villains to be responsible for supervillain tech getting out to the open, you know? Because there's always that problem of, like, well, where does this supervillain come from? Where is where does he get his powers? Where does he get his weapons? Where was he doing before? You don't have to do that anymore. Not as much, anyway. Now you can just establish villains and say, oh, he got his tech from the Vulture and his crew. Like, that's it. You, you have an easy explanation for the abilities of a bunch of villains now. Now Marvel can do... Marvel can introduce any villain they want. Fucking Blizzard, Cyclone, um, Whiplash. I don't know. They can introduce any other villain now and be like, oh, where does he get his weapon? Vulture. Because if you haven't seen the movie, what the hell's wrong with you? But, like, in Spider-Man Homecoming, they established that Adrian Toomes and his, like, co-workers, basically, were part of a construction crew hired by the city to clean up the mess after the Avengers movie which takes place in, <laughs> which took place, I think, in 2008, and then in eight years later, no, no, Avengers takes place in 2012, and then it says eight years later, and we're in Spider-Man Homecoming, which means the Marvel Cinematic Universe takes place in 2020. <laughs> but, at the same time, in 2014, Guardians of the Galaxy comes out, and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, which is like, okay, first Guardians was 2014, second Guardians movie was 2017, but the movies are only like two months apart from each other, which means for the Guardians, it's still 2014. <laughs> it's a mess, man. But hey, that's what the time gem is for, right? My point, though, is that Adrian Toomes and his construction crew were cleaning up the mess after Avengers, and this company called uh, Damage Control, who, again, we're going to talk about, comes in, they're hired by Tony Stark to clean up the mess and like secure everything that's been broken. I think they put it in like Avengers storage afterwards, um, but obviously, like, they're taking the jobs away from Adrian Toomes. The plot is literally, they, they took our germs. It's literally that. Um, but it's done so well, because, as Adrian puts it later on, like, guys like Iron Man are on their ivory tower, and they don't see the small people like him or, like, Peter Parker. The small people that build their roads and fix their bridges, they're all ants and minions, 
where guys like Tony Stark look down on us and don't see our actions. Like, that's... That's a good villain. Like, two for two, Marvel. Eagle Living Planet, now Vulture. You're picking up your, your villain game. I appreciate that. Um, just that whole character thing of him just wanting to work and provide for his family, and that's why he's a villain. And even then, he doesn't see what he's doing as wrong, because it, for him, it's like, I'm just getting back at the people that took my work. And, you know, the superheroes are too busy fighting each other or fighting these big wars to even notice that I'm selling some weapons here and there. Like, that's cool. It's a cool angle for the for the Vulture. Um, and again, like, not enough can be said about his costume. You know, making it a flight jacket, giving it that helmet, giving it the wings, and has features that encompass a lot of different elements of the story. You know, he's got Iron Man tech. He's got, like, a, a hub, like that that screen interface thing in his helmet. Very reminiscent of Iron Man, who's in the movie. Um, the wings, they have, like, turbine engines in them. Very similar to the Falcon's wings, because of course they are. Of course, like, these robotic wings would be similar to what the Falcon uses, um, which are great, which is great. They Not great, but, like, they never make a reference to the Falcon, which it kind of feels remissed. Um, the jacket, again, like, it's not it's not really a costume as it is just kind of like a uniform. And then the furs on the jacket remind you, oh, yeah, he's a vulture. <laughs> That's cool. That's a cool, like, the whole costume is really cool. I love how big it is. I love how the wings are huge. You know, I think with a lot of villains, they, they try to keep them relatively the same size as the hero. But having Spider-Man fight this huge flying, like, monster, basically, is, is really cool. And again... The way they portray the vulture when in costume is done really well because he's always like kind of in shadow. He's got these piercing dotted green eyes which look really cool. Um, he's always si he's usually silent when he's within the suit. Um, one of my favorite scenes of the vulture is during that heist uh, on top of the truck. Right, he throws these alien devices that make the floor or the the roof of the truck intangible. He attaches the wings to the truck and then drops himself into the truck. And then when it's all done, he just gets back on top of the truck and attaches the wings to himself and flies off. You know, it's it's like the wings aren't really part of his suit as they are an apparatus. It's more like he's wearing a really cumbersome means of transportation, which is cool. It's done really well. The flying is done well. The claws that are on his uh, armor are done really well. He uses the the pointy the, fe the oh my god the pointy metal feathers at the end of his wings to snip and cut and slice and that's cool you know I never thought about the vulture being so great at physical combat but this movie manages to do something with that idea and the great they another thing they they take from the Captain America Winter Soldier book of having several villains but not really having having one main villain having a couple of small ones and that's a good idea um they introduce the tinker who again in the comics is an old man for this he's not that's fine he's just kind of like a curious man with too much time on his hands he creates a lot of cool stuff again it's nice having a character who just creates weapons for the villains to use you know it, it leads to other stuff it leads to the vulture armor it leads to sonic blasters and, and phase through technology that's cool um the Shocker, all two of them. <laughs> there's the Herman Schultz Shocker, and then there's the black guy whose name I can't remember. 
Um, they're done decently well. I love the, uh, <laughs> the yellow and brown vest. I guess it's used as like a protective armor because the, the shocker gauntlets, which create shockwaves and produce them, they're repurposed from crossbones as like gauntlets from in Civil War. Crossbones has these gauntlets that like induce like supercharged electric punches or whatever. They manufactured those into sonic wave generators. And the the vest, which is yellow and brown, just like the Shocker costume from the comics, is supposed to be invocative of the costume, but it's also supposed to invoke this idea that it's protective for the user, which is cool. And then, and the fact that the guy who wields the Shocker gauntlets calls himself the Shocker and thinks he's all big and thinks he's like big talk, and then Vulture just obliterates him with like a vaporate, with like a matter displacer ray or something. That's great, too, because Vulture is like, I thought that was the gravity gun. It's like, no, that, that that's over there. Uh, but then they make the black guy Shocker, and, and luckily he doesn't die, which is good. <laughs> but yeah, having the Shocker be kind of just like a toss-around minion is fine, too. Like, having him be like a, a henchman, a, a, a Bond henchman in some way. Like, that's cool. Uh, and then they, they bring in Matt Gargan the Scorpion, but he doesn't have the Scorpion suit with the powers. All he has is a tattoo of a Scorpion on his neck. Uh, and they're kind of imply that Scorpion might be the next villain for these movies, which is fine. Actually, I like classic Scorpion, where he has the slimmed-down green costume. It's kind of reminiscent of Spider-Man's costume, actually. It has even the same kind of eye pattern. The only difference is he has the uh, the tail, the Scorpion tail, which is cool, so maybe we'll talk about Scorpion a little bit later. Um, but yeah, he's in there, too, and he, he's implied. Um... We'll move on to the last character we can talk about. Oh, by the way, Adrian Toomes, love the fact that he's actually Liz Allen's dad. Like, that's a great twist. I didn't see that coming. Um, and the whole scene with Peter Parker in the car with Liz Allen and Adrian Toomes is great. And it, it's shot really well, too, because you know Peter knows, and you can see his nervousness, even when he's talking to Liz or he's doing something else. When he's done, he'll turn back and watch Adrian. And Adrian, recognizing him through his voice, is kind of like a no-brainer. And then that whole thing where they're at the stoplight, <laughs> and the light is red. And then when you see Michael Keaton's Adrian Toomes put it together that Peter Parker is Spider-Man, the light turns green. Green reminiscent of the Vulture costume. It's really, it's done really cool. Um, and then that whole scene in the car where you fucking... <laughs> Adrian pulls a gun out on Peter when Liz is out of the car. And he's like, you stay out of my way or I'll kill you and everyone you love. And now you go show my daughter a good time. And, and the part where he's like, I just saved your life. What do you say? And Peter says, thank you. He's like, you're welcome. That is such a dick bag move and I love it. It's, it's a great scene. Um, and they don't kill Adrian off either at the end of the film. They keep him around. He knows that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. It seems like because Peter saved his life, he's not, he's going to keep that secret. We'll see how far that goes. But, like, that's really great. Hell, what they might do is just, like, they might just uh, kill off Liz Allen the same way they killed off Gwen Stacy and blame it on Spider-Man so that Vulture has a reason to ruin Spider-Man's life. That could be really cool. But uh, now we will talk about the character everyone wants to talk about. Michelle, a.k.a. MJ, played by uh, Zendaya, or Zendaya, say Zendaya. So, MJ, 
I've I've heard a lot of people talk shit about this version of MJ. Um, you know, I, I could give you the the security blanket idea that just because she calls herself M, just because she implies that people call her MJ doesn't mean she's Mary Jane Watson. You know, they could bring in Mary Jane later. She could be a white redheaded chick who was everything you want her to be, but they might not. You know, they could have set up Michelle as, like, a red herring. They could have wanted her to be the new MJ, but given her a different name in case people didn't like her. That's kind of what they did with Lex Luthor in the movies, in uh, BVS. But let's just talk about Michelle as a, as a character. Because when she shows up, she's kind of this weird outsider, black sheep kind of girl. She's also on the science team, conveniently enough. But she seemingly follows Peter Parker around, which is kind of weird. She's there at the lunch table. She's there during detention. She's there on the class trip. She's always got an eye on Peter Parker. And she says at one point, like, I'm not stalking him. I'm just observant or something. Um, her saying that and her, at the end of the movie, like, Peter gets a text by, by Happy Hogan, which, again, that bathroom scene is fucking great. Um... But she, like, Peter's got a text and he's gonna move away and she's like, where are you going, Peter? What are you hiding? She's, never mind, I don't care. That whole thing makes me think she knows he's Spider-Man because she's so observant. Maybe she's got a crush on him. Maybe she follows him around for that. Maybe she's working for a villain. That could be kind of interesting. Um, but she's kind of weird. <laughs> she does have some fun things where it's like, uh, what was it, at the, at the homecoming dance... Peter's looking through the window at, her, at his friends, and MJ wa uh, Michelle waves, and then she fucking flips him off with a smile on her face. That's funny. Um, when they're at the party, yeah, they're at the party, and, and they're like, we didn't think we'd see you here, Michelle. And Michelle is like, am I really here, though? It's so weird. She's weird, but she's funny. I don't know. I, I like Michelle. I know that some people are like, she's not attractive. She's not funny. You know, she's just falling around. She's just a weirdo. I like that. I like MJ being a weirdo, and I, I like, um, you know, I like it being ambiguous, you know, is she actually MJ that we're gonna get? Is she, um, is she stalking Peter Parker? Is she really that weird, or does she have some, something up her sleeve? She's mysterious, and I kind of like that, but she's not mysterious in the brooding, annoying way. She's mysterious in the way that she's always there, but you never know what she's really doing. And that's kind of a, that's kind of neat. I think if Michelle was her own character, people would be more open to the idea of her because she's so different from the rest of the cast. Um, but because she said... Like, if you just cut out the bit at the end where she's like, my friends call me MJ, no one would be pissed. Everyone would be like, all right, so this is Michelle, like a new character, that's fine, whatever. Is she going to be someone important? We'll see. But because she says, my friends call me MJ, everyone lost their shit. Everyone lost their shit before when it was rumored that she was cast as Mary Jane Watson. Um, I didn't care then that they casted a, this black girl from the Disney Channel as MJ. I didn't care, care then. I didn't care then. Sorry, my phone vibrated. Um, I threw my phone out the window. That should help. Um, I didn't care then that they casted a black girl as MJ. And, you know, I don't think I care now. And, and I think the reason people are so upset about it is because... For one thing, the MJ in the Sam Raimi movies wasn't really MJ. Like, she was a redhead, sure, but she didn't have the the spunk, the tenacity, the wildness, you know. 
the thing is, like, I, I've been really back and forth on MJ. When I first learned about her, I was like, why? Like, she, she's kind of a bitch. She's kind of, like, really too popular for her own good. She's kind of, like, about herself, you know. Why should I want her to be with Peter Parker? Just because she's hot? And it's like... I feel like... What is it? Like, so first I didn't... I'm sorry, again, text messages. She... Ugh. At first I didn't like her because I thought she was kind of a bitch. Then I found out that she was written as a bitch for most of her comic book publication because the editors didn't like it because they wanted Spider-Man to be single. Then I liked her because I was like, oh, all the horrible things that, you know, they did with MJ were because of the editors. But I've been so back and forth about it. And, you know, I, I think when it comes down to comic book MJ, I do like her, and I do like her for Peter Parker. I think based on the kind of person Peter was and who he grew into, and then based on what kind of person she was and who she grew into, when I think about Peter Parker's greatest love, it is MJ. You know, MJ and Peter, it's like Superman and Lois, you know? But, that being said, I've seen, I've seen enough of that. I've seen enough of Peter having these almost perfect relationships in the movies, and... You know, in the comics, everyone's like, oh, Peter, you know, his, his love falls apart. And it's like, not always. You know, with MJ, he does get married and stuff. But, like, I don't know. Every time I try to think about this new version of MJ and if I have a problem with it, I don't find myself having any detention toward it. You know, it, it might be one of those things where I'm just not super connected with MJ from the comics. It might be that... I'm willing to see it from another perspective and realize, you know, it's not going to be a bouncy redhead. It's it's this now because that's that's the realistic way that it goes. That's the modern version of where this character would be. And it's not. Like, Michelle, as far as a character, is nothing like MJ. You know, she is her own character. You didn't have to call her MJ. That being said, if she is going to be the one true MJ of this movie universe, people are going to be pissed. I'm not going to be pissed. Because, again... I recognize that this isn't Spider-Man of any previous generation. It's Spider-Man now. And now, plenty of girls are like MJ. Plenty of girls are like Gwen Stacy. Back in the 60s, MJ was considered, like, the rare girl. She was considered something new. Something dangerous and mysterious and, and fun. Girl next door, kind of, you know? Back in the day, MJ was made the way she was because Stan Lee wanted, like, a hot rocket, spunky girl in there to be something different, something new, something unusual. I think, you know, without going too far into thinking, I think that's what this new MJ is supposed to be. You know, girls today, there's a hundred of them that are like MJ, that behave like her, that have her issues, that want to be like her, do the things that she did. But when it comes to girls like Michelle they're usually the black sheeps, and they're usually seen outside the crowd. The same way when MJ showed up, she was considered outside the crowd. She was something different, something new. So, I don't think Michelle slash MJ is supposed to be everything you wanted about MJ, but I think she's supposed to carry the same feeling that MJ carried when she was introduced in the 60s. And I'm fine with that concept, 
and I'm I'm ready to see Peter Parker have new love interests and and be around new people. You know, because for as long as the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been going, every Spider-Man story has been teenager, Mary Jane, Gwen Stacy, Uncle Ben, Spider Bite, love triangles. That's it. And like animals, animal themed villains here and there. But something new is not something bad. Okay, other things that are not cast related. Uh, They introduced damage control. That's awesome. I heard that they're still going to do a damage control TV show. Hope that still happens. Hope it's connected to Spider-Man Homecoming in some way. Uh, really shows some fourth raw. Like, if that's, like, the, uh, what is it? The prelude to Damage Control as a TV show. Great thought on Marvel's part. Um, another thing I liked about the movie, new locations. First time we see Spider-Man in Washington, D.C. First time we see him in Maryland. Uh, the last fight is, I think, on the beach of Coney Island. Um, what else, what else? He, he's in the suburbs. That's cool. Spider-Man in the suburbs. He's run through the backyards like he's Ferris Bueller. That scene would have been great if they didn't have someone watching that Ferris Bueller movie in the background. <laughs> like, that's way too on the nose. Um, the scene where he's at the golf course and he tries to shoot a web and there's nothing to web onto. And so he has to run through the field. Like, that is a great, like, really meta joke about Spider-Man not working outside of a city. Um, but again, that's new against, you know this traditional Spider-Man stuff. Um, the hero-villain balance, as far as, like, Spider-Man being the everyday kid, Adrian Toomes being, like, the average guy, and both of them doing the unusual thing, but for the different reasons, that's cool. Um, again, they avoid a lot of Spider-Man tropes, like the upside-down kiss, uh, you know, the villain dying at the end. They don't really talk about Spider-Sense, but I think it's implied that it's there. It's just not fully fleshed out, especially because they overuse it in the other movies. Um, no fight with the bully. <sighs> yeah, they, they remove a couple of them. They remove a couple of spider tropes here and there. Um, I do love... <laughs> I love the whole sequence towards the beginning where Spider-Man's going around just helping people. So he stops a car... Uh, a bike theft. He stops... Um, God, what is it? He stops a bike theft? He, he tells a woman, like, directions... There's some guy watching him while he's on a roof, and he's like, hey, Spider-Man, do a flip, and Spider-Man does, and the guy's like, woo! Like, I love, in the whole scene with Stan Lee, that's great. I love Spider-Man being this ground-level hero, because you don't really have that. Like, Ant-Man is just a guy, but he doesn't really deal with people. Spider-Man deals with people. It's kind of like the Netflix shows, but like a bright side of that, where it's from, like, the the ground-level New Yorker perspective on superheroes, and Peter's part of that. Like, the Captain America PSAs in, on VCR, that's that's really awesome. Um, thank you, Chris Evans, for doing that. Um, what is it? The references to Bruce Banner and, like, Thor, it, you know, and Black Widow. Like, all these references to the modern-day, like, hero aesthetic, like, from the ground level, it's cool. It gives you a perspective on the Marvel Universe you haven't really seen. Because the Netflix shows mostly focus on the main characters themselves. But because it's a Spider-Man movie and Spider-Man is growing up next to these heroes, you're going to have that perspective on the whole thing. Um, what else? Aunt May, at the end, knowing that Spider-Man's Peter Parker, again, against the trope wave, some people don't like that. I do. I like that Aunt May knows now. She might hold it against Tony. She might, like, help Peter in some regard. She might, like... Aunt May might do for Peter what MJ did for Peter in the 90s. Not... 
that stuff, but, like, sew his costume together and, like, pack him a lunch and, like, worry about him. I don't know. I hope it's not too much. I hope she's not calling all the time. I hope she doesn't restrict him from being Spider-Man. I hope there's no drama there where it's like, you can't be Spider-Man because you're going to die like Ben. I mean, that, that's probably what it's going to be. In the next movie, there's probably going to be a whole plot about them actually bringing up Uncle Ben. Not really showing it, but, like, using it as an example as why Peter can't be Spider-Man. But it was not overdone too much. I know that the thing people complain about with this Spider-Man movie is that while it is shown that his personal life and the superhero life clash together and cause repercussions, you don't see those repercussions. You know, I think Peter... <laughs> Peter ditches Liz about three times in this movie, and not once does she call him out and say he's a dick about it. She forgives him every time. And he ditches Gank at a party, and, like... Gank is not, like, sent home crying or, like, get, like, dumped with pig's blood or whatever. Nothing bad happens to Gank. And, you know, for some people, it's like, that's not what Spider-Man is. And when Spider-Man makes a decision, it's supposed to, like, affect the other half of his life. I don't really mind. Again, I feel like that's, A, a Spider-Man trope, and, B, it slows the movie down. You know, I that's just what I think. That's just my opinion. Um, But Aunt May, knowing his Spider-Man... I'm cool with that. They they ended it off in a fun way. And then... What else? Oh, and then the, the suit. Okay, let's talk about the suit a little bit, because I have a lot to say about that. I love this suit. Again, it's neck and neck with the Amazing Spider-Man 2 suit. It is a little too gadgety. The fact that he has, like, an interface hub is a bit much. The fact that he can shoot holograms and stuff, that seems a bit much. Um, I'm not a fan of the spider... This, this, it's supposed to be the spider tracer, but it's more like the spider drone. It's kind of like what Falcon has on his suit, like the little red wing robot, which again, makes sense that it's connected that way. Um, but I don't know, I'm not super into like the little rover spider flying around. I get what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a more effective spider tracer, because instead of attaching to someone, it just follows them around as a little probe. Seems a bit much. Just saying. Um... What else does he have? Oh, God, all the web options. Like, the web bomb, and the taser web, and the explosive web, and the, the instant kill mode. Like, that was a fun joke. But, like, don't overwhelm the kid. Actually, that is a good point, because Peter hacks the Spider-Man suit and gets all the other web possibilities. And then, like, when he finds that stuff, it's overwhelming for him. And I, you know, against my own point, I kind of like that. <laughs> like... Even Peter knows it's a bit much for the simple design of the Spider-Man costume and powers. Um, God, what else? There's the web wings, which are used once, and that's fine. The parachute, which is used once, that's fine too. It sets up a pretty scary, almost death scene for Spider-Man. Um, what else do they use? I think I think that's about it as far as like the. The special capabilities of the suit. Oh, wait, he can, like, listen in on conversations and see through solid objects. He's, like, he's got Superman power levels now. Um, what else? Oh, Karen. So the AI voice in Spider-Man's suit, he names Karen. She's, like, a female voice. I forget who voices her, but I like her. I, I saw a lot of people being like, oh, she can she, like, because when Jarvis started out, he became, he was Jarvis the AI, and then he became uh, the Vision, his own character. Can we do that for Karen, the AI? Can we make her a uh, Jocasta? That'd be kind of cool. Um, and, like, the whole point of, uh, 
the whole point of Karen, by the way, because people don't like Karen because it's like, oh, she's an AI, and, you know, it's, it's too much Iron Man Jr. For me, Karen is just a way that Peter can talk to himself. Because you read a, a Spider-Man comic, and he is always monologuing to himself. He's either saying it out loud or thinking it, but, like, Peter Parker, what is the... <laughs> I heard a quote online, which was like, there's only one person who talks as much as Peter Parker... Or sorry, there's only one person that talks to himself as much as Peter Parker, and that's Hamlet, which is pretty good. It's a pretty good description. Um, but Karen is just there to kind of bounce off him so he can think out loud and have someone to talk to without him just talking the entire time. He's swinging around. Um, so that's fine, and I like Karen's personality. She is very kind of, like, oblivious to how humans interact and, you know, very blunt about how she says, like... The, like she tells him to tell Liz straight up that he loves her, which is, again, a bit much. Um, but no, Karen's fine. Uh, it's a good way of giving Peter another mentor, another person to talk to, without necessarily having a drawback to it. Uh, I love, oh my god, this Spider-Man costume, the thing I love the most, are the eyes. Because they, they get bigger and smaller, and they move with his expressions. Which is like, again, people might be like, oh, what, he's got camera eyes now? It's like, no. They just did the Deadpool thing without with giving it a reason. Because in Deadpool, it's like, oh, it just moves with his face. But in this, it's like, no, his eyes react to how his eyes work under the mask. If he has to, like, squint to see something, the eyes will get smaller. If he has to widen his eyes, they get wide. You know, he has different expressions. And I, I love that. The problem with the Spider-Man costume in previous movies was always that the eyes were stagnant and just weird and still. Now... They're not. Now they move with his face, and it looks cool. You know, I've, that's my favorite part about Spider-Man's design, is just his eyes. They're cool. They always pop out for me. Um, I'm saying this staring at my pop figure of Spider-Man over there. And it's the Homecoming Spider-Man, too, because it, it's a good one. Um, but the suit's cool. The The black lines I could probably do without, but for the most part, it's legit. Um, the DIY Spider-Man costume, I, I like that. At first, I was like, whatever. But then I was like, oh, it kind of reminds me of Ben Riley's DIY suit. And that's fine. I kind of like that. I like his DIY costume. It's a good inverse of that, too, because Ben Riley had the right, the red tights with the blue uh, sweatshirt. And then, and then the suit at the end, the, a lot of people were like, oh, it's Iron Spider costume because Tony Stark made it, and it's golden, kind of robotic. No. <laughs> it's a little bit Iron Spider, but it's mostly... Ben Riley Scarlet Spider. You take away those gold trimmings, which at first I was like, what the fuck? But then I was like, okay, gold trimmings looks okay. I think, and I heard that we're going to get that suit in Infinity War, so that's cool. But you take away the gold trimmings, and it's like, no, that's just the, that's just Ben Riley's Spectacular Spider-Man costume, or Sensational Spider-Man. I forget which one it was. I think it was Sensational. Um, but it looks good. I, the, the new suit looks good. I'm glad he didn't take it off the back, because I actually do like the first Tony-built Spider-Man suit even if it takes away from Spider-Man himself, but again, suit looks cool. I like it. Okay, so now we'll, we'll talk about the things that I want to see in the future for Spider-Man. Again, first, Infinity War, right? Uh, I talked about this on previous episodes of the Weekly Flip, but I had heard things that during Infinity War in space, Spider-Man would get the Venom symbiote, and then the next Spider-Man movie would have him in the suit and end with him losing the suit. That's good. That's a good idea. Because having the suit fall from space, having the suit be created by science, it's not the same. You need to have 
him just discover it in space on some crazy mission with the Avengers. That way, because if these next Spider-Man movies are supposed to be distant from the Avengers, because Sony wants the property to itself again, get, having him get the Venom symbiote from Infinity War is a good holdover, because it reminds you, oh yeah, this guy was with the Avengers for a little while. That's how he got the black suit. And, you know, the, now that I think about it, because like I said, that upgraded Spider-Man suit with the gold trimming, it's going to be an Infinity War. He's going to wear it in that one. If the black symbiote attaches to that and turns that... Cause the, oh my god, yes. <laughs> yes, because the when Spider-Man had the, the black symbiote, the white spider symbol on his chest like extended its legs just a little bit. Not as wide as Venom, but it extended its legs out, and it looked more dynamic and more creepy. And it was just black with a white spider on it. Because the new Spider-Man suit has a spider that goes over the shoulders and like around the stomach or the torso region, if the black suit got on that new armor, that spider would turn white and it would look like the Venom symbiote. It would look a lot better. Because the problem with the Venom symbiote in the previous films, the previous one film, is that they just took the costume and just made it black but kept the um, texture designs and like the layers and stuff like that. But like... If it can just be pure black, white eyes that get bigger and wider, uh, or bigger and wider, bigger and smaller, um, and the big spider on the chest just turned white, it would be really legit. I'd love that. Um, and also, this might be a thing for like a Venom pitch down the road, but I also would like the idea that, this, that the Venom symbiote hacks into Karen in some way, and so rather than Spider-Man talking to like a voice in his head, or talking to some, like, creepy voice that comes from the suit. No, have the symbiote speak through Karen. So it's like the symbiote is getting to know Peter through Karen's voice and fall in love with Peter, because that's how it goes in the books. In the books, the symbiote falls in love with Peter because it, like, keeps him alive and stuff, but have it kind of speak through Karen. That could be really cool. Um, and then, like, that could be cool. Then you can get Venom later down the road. Um, what else? Oh, here's a good question. Will he be, um... Actually, here, we'll go with this one first. J. Jonah Jameson. What are you going to do with him? Are you going to bring back, uh, J.K. Simmons? That'd be great. You're going to get someone different? There's a chance. There's a lot of scenes in the movie where I'm like, oh, if J. Jonah Jameson got this, he could turn around. You've probably seen the meme online. Like, he defaced a bank. He defaced a monument. He, he crashed a bunch of shit in Coney Island. He destroyed this. He destroyed that. Um, he broke into a government facility. He's a menace. And it's like, J. Jonah Jameson, do that. <laughs> Have the next movie be about Peter getting his first job and J. Jonah Jameson hating Spider-Man using all that stuff in the first movie as evidence against Spider-Man. That could be great. And then, like, another question, will Spider-Man rebel against Tony Stark? Because, again, if the Ven Venom symbiote happens, if if Aunt May tell like tells off Tony Stark... If Tony Stark makes a bad decision in Infinity War, will Spider-Man... Because that's, that's the other thing about Spider-Man in the comics is that early on, he was kind of an outsider. He was kind of like, not a rebel against the Avengers, but the Avengers wouldn't consider him because he was kind of small-time. He kept his identity a secret. They didn't know much about him. Are they going to go back to that? Is Spider-Man going to be, like, <laughs> distant from the Avengers because I imagined he'd almost die in Infinity War. I think that's what they're going to do. In order to separate Spider-Man from the Avengers... They're going to A, give him the Venom symbiote so you're reminded it's the same universe. 
and they're going to be have him almost die in Infinity War and have Aunt May pull him away from the Avengers to keep him safe, like tell him to stay in the city. Um, that'd be a great way of doing it. And then, will he be outed down the line? Will Peter Parker be revealed to be Spider-Man to the public? Because they almost do that. At the end of the movie, when Peter, when Tony's like, oh yeah, we're going to tell the world that Spider-Man is an, an official Avenger now. Were they going to reveal his identity? I don't think they were, because again, <laughs> Peter's 15, so Tony would go to jail. Um, but later down the line, when he turns 18, is it going to be revealed to everyone? I think that would be something to... That would be something to cause tension, obviously. Aunt May could get hurt. His friends could get hurt. J. Jonah Jameson could tell him off. Like, you were working for me for this long, and you didn't tell me you were Spider-Man, blah, 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 blah. It could be great. It could be a great uh, turning point for the series. And then Scorpion, right? Scorpion, you kind of have to make him the, the new, the next villain. I guess you don't have to. A lot of people don't want him to be, but I kind of like him to be. Um... Again, as far as the suit goes, just give him the green, the green like tight costume, with like a mechanical back apparatus that goes into the scorpion tail. That would be fine. It would look good. Print it right. <laughs> um, I don't know. A couple other villains for the sequel, like I don't know. Bring make it. You know, bring in some crime characters like uh, like Tombstone and, and Hammerhead and the Enforcers. You know, have them kind of interplay with the whole plot of him having a job and doing, like, investigative photography. <laughs> I don't know. Could look cool. Actually, now that he has that spider probe, he could just attach a camera to that and have that take pictures of him. That could be... There you go. I, You know what? That's my prediction for the next movie. He's going to turn the spider probe on his chest into a camera and use it to take pictures of himself to sell to the vehicle. That's my prediction. Um, but, yeah, so Spider-Man Homecoming, I, I get it. I get why people would have a problem with Spider-Man Homecoming as far as race changes, as far as, like, making characters too young, making characters too dependent on Avengers, having the story be so small. Fact is, like, this is what Spider-Man needs to be at first in this universe. You can't have him start out and be big time. You know, the whole thing of him fighting in the Civil War and then coming back and being like, I want more missions like that, and then deciding at the end of the film, like, maybe I should stay small time because there's people I have to protect. I have to look out for the little guy. Like, by the end of the film, Peter's like, no, I can't be an Avenger because the world, or at least New York, needs me to be their Spider-Man. And I think that's a great lesson for him to learn. Um, I, I love the movie. I really do. I, I love, like, even the stuff like, like Michelle slash MJ, you know, and... And the idea that it's not a huge plot, you know, the idea that he has Iron Man-esque gadgets, and the movie isn't really about anything, it's not really, it doesn't really have a theme to it, necessarily, like, the theme is that, like, you gotta look out for the small people, but, in general, I just think it was a really good movie, like, I can't, <sighs> with Civil War, I could go on and on about, like, what it means for the MCU, and what it has to be, and and all the things that in, in trials along the way. With Wonder Woman, I was like, it was the inspiring movie that kicked off the DCU and told it that just make the characters and you'll get a good movie. Spider-Man Homecoming is just pure Spider-Man with modern-day uh, consideration put in mind. And I think that the movie strides by being its own movie, not independent necessarily, but 
by doing what it has to do without meeting to the demands. I think the the bit where Michelle says you can call me MJ felt like a bit of the people making the film establishing like, oh no, don't worry, we have an MJ too. I think they didn't have to do that. I think if they just went on their own role without having to necessarily meeting demands that Spider-Man fans had, they'd be better off. So, you know, I think if you're a classic Spider-Man fan, you might, you might not really like this movie all that much because it, it deviates a lot. If you're a diehard Spider-Man fan, you might not like it. But if you're... If you are a fan of Spider-Man, and you're not afraid of change, and you want to see something new, you want to see something different, and you're eager to see what the next step for a Spider-Man character is, Spider-Man Homecoming is great. And, you know, I I can't say necessarily that it's better than Spider-Man 1 or 2, but what I can tell you is that it is the, <laughs> it is the best case scenario of what could have happened after Spider-Man 2. Amazing Spider-Man 2. It's the best case scenario of what could happen between Marvel and Sony, and hopefully, due to the box office success, Sony will realize that being part of Marvel is bet is good for business. So, that being said, I'm giving Spider-Man Homecoming a solid A. You know, it's not perfect. There's a couple of, you know, trips and bounds here and there, but for the most part, it is a great film, great Spider-Man film, and a welcomed addition to the Marvel Cinematic Universe lineup. And I'm looking forward to seeing where Peter Parker goes next and where his life takes him. So thank you all for listening to this review so very much. I know it takes a while to you know wait on these, and it takes a while to make them too, but um, I'm happy to share my thoughts and get my opinion out there. And you know, you'll know you be damn sure I'll have opinions about Thor Ragnarok as well. So. You know, go to panboy.podbean.com, panboy.blogs.com. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, and we're on YouTube. Um, coming this August, I think August 4th it might be, it'll be two years that the Combo Buffet has been uh, on podcast format. Think about doing something special for that. If you have any ideas, hit me up on Facebook. I'm willing to listen to anything. Uh, but then again, but again, thank you for listening so much. And I'll see you guys next time. Goodbye.